Hi everyone, and welcome to the December 2020 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I may be recording this in November, but it's already beginning to look a lot like Christmas. While I have got my Santa hat on, I'm afraid it's just more of the same from us today, so there are no extra bells or whistles, maybe next year. And before anyone mentions it, no, the news bell doesn't count. Becky McGowan and Paul Healy will be joining me a bit later on to talk about distressed employers, which is unfortunately very topical at the moment. But first, here's your final news roundup of 2020. Okay, let's get GMP equalisation out of the way first. One of the big questions not addressed by the ruling on the Lloyds case in 2018 was the treatment of members who had historically transferred benefits out of a scheme. The High Court's now published a new judgment on this point and, well, it's not really the Christmas present we were all hoping for. The new judgment says top-ups are required for historic CETVs that would have been affected by GMP equalisation. But the real kicker here is that there's no time bar on this, meaning schemes will have to look at transfers dating all the way back to 1990. Joy to the world. <clears throat> yeah, so there are no deadlines for this, but trustees will need to be proactive rather than just waiting for members to make claims themselves. Trustees may have the option of agreeing alternatives to top-up payments, but members wouldn't be able to require a new residual benefit in a scheme they've already transferred out of. Where top-up payments are being made, the transferring scheme will need to add interest at 1% above base rates. The ruling focuses on statutory CETV payments, so there may be some transfers where the position is a bit less clear. For example, members who transferred out within a year of normal pension age and wouldn't technically have been entitled to a statutory CETV. Whether any top-ups are required in these other cases will depend very much on the individual circumstances. Another issue is historic bulk transfers. The judgment confirms that no top-ups are required for bulk transfers done without member consent where mirror image benefits were provided in the receiving scheme. However, other bulk transfers that don't fit that quite narrow description would need to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. There's a lot to do here, but the most urgent action will be for companies with a 31st of December year-end, who may need to include an extra reserve in their accounts. I did flag this a couple of months ago, but if you're in this position, you should discuss this with your advisors as soon as possible. The Pensions Dashboard Programme, or PDP for short, has published a progress update setting out what they've achieved over the last six months. This update includes a new timeline for the project, which is split into five phases, broadly corresponding to the next five years. We're currently in the first phase, which is programme setup and planning. And as part of this, we're expecting the first version of the data standards to be published during December. Alongside this progress update, the PDP has also published a summary of the responses from their call for input on data from back in the summer. Unsurprisingly, a lot of the responses called out the challenges of providing estimated retirement income figures, both in terms of the amount of work required and the potential for inconsistent approaches between different schemes. I guess we'll see whether this has any impact on the PDP's plans shortly. The next couple of phases then focus on developing and testing, with some volunteer schemes being connected to the service as part of phase three. The biggest milestone is phase four, which starts in 2023. At this point, schemes and providers will be compelled to connect to the dashboard ecosystem, and dashboards will become available to consumers. The final phase is then a transition to business as usual. A little bit on ESG and responsible investment for you now. So the PLSA has published a report intended to address the barriers that prevent pension funds from fully embracing climate-aware investment. This report identifies seven key barriers and sets out recommendations to overcome each one of them. Responsible investment-focused charity Share Action has also been ramping up their activity. 
with an event held in collaboration with the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Sustainable Finance. They presented a proposed Responsible Investment Bill to MPs. One of the key aspects related to the duty of fiduciary investors to act in the best interests of their beneficiaries. Traditionally, this has been focused on purely financial factors, but the proposed bill would include ESG factors in this by law for the first time. Investors would also be required to align their objectives with the Paris Climate Agreement. This may all be intended to start a debate rather than actually becoming legislation, but it's already picked up support from some MPs, so it's worth keeping an eye on this. The pensions regulator has called on the pensions industry to publicly pledge to combat pension scams as part of a major new campaign. Trustees, providers and administrators are all asked to pledge to do what they can to protect scheme members and to follow the principles of the Pension Scam Industry Group's Code of Good Practice. Those in the industry will also be challenged to educate themselves about current and emerging scam tactics and adopt best practice when it comes to transfer due diligence. TPR has also added a new module to its trustee toolkit outlining the processes it expects all trustees and providers to follow to keep members safe. On the same theme, the Pensions Minister, Guy Opperman, has revealed that after the Pension Schemes Bill has passed, the government's planning to introduce some new regulations that will help to prevent future scams. These will include a set of red flags for trustees to look out for, with the regulations allowing them to refuse transfers where those red flags apply. And finally, a bit of inflation news. Back in April, I told you about a consultation on the methodology for calculating RPI. The consultation had already confirmed that RPI would be amended to be calculated in the same way as the existing CPIH measure, and it focused instead on the timing of the change. The Treasury and the UK Statistics Authority have now published a response to this consultation, which effectively confirms that this change will be made with effect from February 2030, which is really the earliest the change could be made without requiring consent from the Chancellor. In practice, this means that RPI inflation will be expected to increase at a lower rate from 2030 onwards. It seems that Santa Claus isn't coming to town for holders of index-linked gilts, as the response also confirms that the government won't be compensating them for the impact of this change. This isn't really a surprise, as the consultation didn't mention compensation at all, but it will be a disappointment to many, and we may well see some legal challenges on this point in the coming months and years. The response was largely as expected, so market reaction has been relatively muted. Some DB schemes may see an impact on their funding position, although this will be quite scheme-specific depending on benefit structures and hedging levels. There will also be an impact on pension scheme members, as those with pension increases linked to RPI can now expect lower increases from 2030 onwards. We may dig into this one in a bit more detail in the new year, so look out for that. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. As I've already mentioned, this is our Christmas episode. So to get you in the festive spirit, we thought we'd talk about distressed employers. Okay, well, it's not really very Christmassy, but it's about the best we can really expect from 2020. On the 12th of November, TPR published their new guidance on protecting schemes from sponsoring employer distress. This builds on some of the COVID-19 guidance TPR put out earlier in the year, and it sets out some broad planning advice for all trustees of DB schemes, as well as some details specifically aimed at trustees whose employers might be experiencing financial distress during the pandemic. To talk about this today, I'm joined by Paul Healy from Aon's Covenant team and Becky McGowan, a partner from our trustee retirement consulting team who has some first-hand experience in this area. So thanks to both of you for calling in today. Paul, um, can I just ask you to kick things off by giving us a quick description of the main covenant angles in this new guidance? Well, 
Ricky, initially, the guidance is more about, about planning for the event of employer distress in the future. And it then gets into what trustees should do if their employer begins showing signs of distress. The last section of the guidance covers trustee actions if the employer is facing insolvency in the short term. The guidance is couched in terms of integrated risk management or IRM. As you know, trustees have long been encouraged by the regulator to consider scheme covenant, funding and investment risks holistically and devise a series of action plans that could be triggered as appropriate in a variety of situations, including employer distress. This part of the guidance is a useful way for trustees to supplement their planning in this area. The regulator emphasises the importance of trustees having effective risk management processes in place. In other words, legally enforceable contingency plans with specific trigger points to mitigate risks, such as being able to call on a parent company guarantee if the affordability of contributions is threatened. At very least, an IRM plan should set down the actions that trustees intend to take if such risks were to arise. I mean, this new guidance stresses trustees need to understand what the employer's legal obligations to the scheme are and the estimated outcome for the scheme in an insolvency of its employer. This may seem obvious at first glance, but we have encountered quite a few trustee boards who consider their covenant to be provided by their employer's wider corporate group rather than the statutory employer entity which carries the actual legal obligation. Now, sometimes this view is justified legally by the presence of enforceable guarantees from other major group companies, but sometimes it's a more informal arrangement and the guidance is plain that trustees need to really understand the difference and that if it came to insolvency, which group entities will be legally bound to support the scheme. The guidance goes on to mention that distressed employers can undertake corporate activity in an accelerated time frame to produce cash to keep the business alive. And this can have far reaching consequences for the scheme's covenant. An accelerated transaction to sell part of the employer's business or asset base may benefit the cash in the short term, but it can still be materially detrimental to the covenant and the options for mitigation might be limited at that point. If the scheme is the employer's largest creditor or one of its largest, the employer may be looking at plans including the scheme, such as restructuring using a regulated apportionment arrangement or a CVA, and these always throw up lots of complicated issues for trustees and independent professional input is strongly advised by the regulator. So the regulator has been encouraging trustees to monitor their covenant for quite a long time now. What extra detail does this guidance give us that we didn't have already? Proportionate covenant monitoring is already expected as part of the scheme's IRM framework, but the guidance goes further to suggest that trustees should be challenging the assumptions supporting employer forecasts and considering the behaviour of the covenant under stress to ascertain what level of support remains for the scheme and whether this hits any of the scheme's triggers for action under its contingency plans. The guidance actually goes as far as to specifically mention reviewing the ability of the employer to meet its borrowing covenants in the forecast period and checking on debt maturities so key financing risk can be monitored. The guidance highlights the need for trustees to step up the frequency and intensity of their covenant monitoring depending on the degree of employer distress. The reason for this is that other stakeholders won't sit still in this time and will likely work to improve their own positions and therefore social the scheme. I mean, the key to this is early engagement with the employer and timely monitoring of the right depth can trigger this engagement and so increase the chances of the scheme being treated fairly relative to other stakeholders, which, as you know, is a message which has come through clearly in recent annual funding statements.
Covenant monitoring tends to rely pretty heavily on information from the employer, and I guess that can be harder to get hold of if the employer is in distress. Does the regulator give any kind of guidance to trustees on those sort of issues? Certainly, yes. The, the, the trustees need a regular and sufficient flow of information to be able to monitor the covenant effectively. And the regulator advises trustees to agree what they want to see with the employer up front as part of a documented information sharing protocol, which preferably is legally binding. This may seem over the top, but as an employer's distress worsens, management's time becomes consumed by firefighting and trying to stabilize the employer's financial position so that a turnaround can be effected. When this happens, the stakeholders with the most influence over the immediate future of the business tend to dictate the form and flow of information, and management's effort is channeled into keeping these key stakeholders informed. In these circumstances, it's very easy for the scheme to be seen by management as a second-tier problem, and so information flow can become sporadic or dry up altogether. And although this may be understandable in the circumstances, it is certainly not acceptable, and management should continue to honour information requests from the trustees. At this point, the usefulness of a legally binding information sharing protocol becomes pretty clear, I think. Thanks, Paul. So, Becky, if we turn to you, you've advised trustees in this area before. What was the background to that particular case and would this new guidance have helped in your situation? Hi, Ricky. I advised the trustees of a scheme involved in a high-profile insolvency a couple of years ago. That employer sponsored several pension schemes, most of which are now in the PPF. The scheme that I advised is now going through an insolvent, underfunded wind-up, so is in a slightly better position than the other sister schemes. This group of trustees actually did most of the things that TPR is now recommending, so I don't think the guidance would have made any difference to the outcome. However, had the guidance been around at the time, it would have given the trustees some additional strength behind their case during discussions with the sponsor. It also have given the trustees some important reassurance. The six months when insolvency went from possible to likely to inevitable were incredibly stressful for everyone involved, and particularly the trustees, and this guidance would have really given them a roadmap to follow. So you said that the trustees did most of the things TPR is suggesting here. What sort of actions did they actually take? So the actions they took started early. There'd always been a really strong desire to prioritise getting cash into the scheme. So they set strong technical provisions with a structured de-risking plan that they were actively following. The trustees took regular covenant advice. And I think that was really important because it helped to ensure that the covenant advisor was a trusted member of the team when things got difficult and additional reliance was being placed on them. When the company first issued a profit warning, the trustees took the opportunity to bring forward a de-risking trigger, locking in the funding position they had. They also thought carefully about a member communication strategy. Of course, there's very little reassurance that you can give to members during this period, but you can ensure that the information they have is accurate and they understand what the future may look like, so they can begin to do their own financial planning. As this insolvency was high profile, the pension trustees also appointed a PR firm to handle press inquiries. And did you learn any other lessons from that experience? Well, I think it's, it's quite interesting that TPR covers practical and governance issues in the guidance. And most of what's being suggested matches my experience. Firstly, I think a professional trustee is essential in these situations. In the final stages, things move quickly with long technical meetings happening almost every day. It went beyond the commitment and expertise that most member-nominated trustees can offer a scheme. And the company-appointed trustees were at that point rightly focused on attempting to save the business rather than able to devote time to their pension scheme responsibilities. I would also really recommend getting documents in order, looking in detail at PPF entitlements or any special member provisions, and where possible engaging early with the PPF. 
I think the process of engagement can sometimes feel too early if everyone is still focused on rescuing the business, but it does make any transition go much more smoothly. It's really important to have a comprehensive record of benefits, rule amendments, enhancements, ill health records and so on. Tracking down scheme records and pulling documents back from archive is time well spent because it only gets much harder once there's no one at the company to support with that. I also wasn't expecting the whole process to be as emotionally draining and undeniably sad as it was. It really brings home that the members we look after are real people, many of whom are faced with losing their jobs as well as reductions in their pension. And those people were really relying on the trustees and their advisors to fight their corner. So I guess for both of you, just to wrap up, what would you say are the key takeaways for trustees who are thinking about how this guidance affects them? Well, Ricky, in summary, uh, this guidance contains much that is useful to both trustees and their advisors, particularly covenant advisors. It's a considerable expansion of the COVID-19 guidance issued earlier this year, and uh, usefully it focuses on contingency planning for distress, actions if employers get into distress, and finally, matters trustees should be considering if their employer is about to become insolvent. I think the main covenant takeaways from the new guidance are that trustees should adopt a fully documented integrated risk management approach to their scheme, including contingency planning in the event of employer distress. Effective targeted covenant monitoring involving regular open and honest engagement with the employer will pay dividends in terms of keeping trustees informed of developments and the changing positions of other stakeholders. It can facilitate action planning to secure additional support for the scheme in a timely manner while various options for support still remain on the table. If trustees delay in doing this, then value can disappear from the employer quickly, with the benefit probably accruing to other stakeholders, potentially to the detriment of the scheme. And lastly, there's a reminder that the PPF provides lots of useful guidance on it for its trustees facing imminent insolvency of their employer on its website. So I would say that trustees should use the guidance to prepare early for what they would do in the event of a future sponsor failure. If it does happen, things will move quickly and it's often too late by then to make either practical or strategic changes. Excellent. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today. And I hope you both have as good a Christmas as it's possible to have under whatever rules are in place at that time. Thanks, Ricky. Thank you. Right, that's everything for today and indeed for this year. So thanks again to my guests, Paul Healy and Becky McGowan. And thanks to you for listening. I'll be back for the first episode of 2021 in February, which is two months away. I did think about filling the gap with a compilation episode featuring all the best bits from the last year, but then I remembered it was 2020 and none of us really want to go through that again. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.